Well, uh, a couple of things. One, if you are watching online and you say, boy, it sure does look dark. I'm on there. That's because it is. And uh, if you are here in the room and you're saying, boy, it sure looks dark. Uh, that's because it is. And so we have a very, very simple problem. We just had a part that couldn't get here. And so uh, there's nothing locally. We had to order it. And uh, so it won't be here till next week. So next week you should see more light. I'm here. But the good news is you don't have to see my face. So you don't have to deal with that for uh, most of the time that, uh, that we're here. Now we are going to start a series. It is going to be a very, very brief series. It will be just three weeks. It'll be this week, next week, and the week after that. And the series simply titled, Holiness. Now, what is holiness? And why in the world would we say, as a church, we would like to spend three weeks talking about this subject matter? And we'll make this really clear. And hopefully, I can make this very, very short because there's a video we're going to watch that's going to explain it here in just a few moments. But track with me. I believe with every fiber of my being, and I may be wrong because I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I believe with every fiber of my being. That what this pandemic has brought out, it didn't create something, it revealed something. And what it has brought out, it has brought out for us that in the South, we have this thing called cultural Christianity. It's all over the world. Right now, folks in the Middle East are dealing with it. It's called cultural, um, uh, when it comes to the Muslim faith. After a while, when something becomes so normative, there is a tendency uh, for us to simply go along with, simply because that's what's happened before, rather than embracing it. So every child must deal at some point with, am I going to embrace faith? It will become my faith, or will this simply just be my parents' faith? Here in the South, I think this is what happened in this pandemic. While we had uh, to be shut down, and rightfully so, get it, understand that, uh, we uh, we're forced to go to watching things uh, online, and uh, really what has happened is there used to be a crowd that would come on Sunday mornings, and some would refer to them as Christers. Christmas and Easter, that's when you come to the services. Throw in Mother's Day so you can throw mama bone, but periodically you come to church when it's convenient to come to church. I would much rather somebody come when it's convenient than never come at all. I think what's going to happen is that's going to move to online. And by and large, the folks in the South that have been used to going to church, those who are coming back are back. And those that are now going to move their cultural Christianity is now going to be online. And so we thought and prayed, so what, what can we do with the people that are here now? So this is where we're going for this whole year. We believe that the folks that are coming here, you're coming here because you want to be here. And you come in here because you're hungry for God's word. You want to see God do something in you and through you that you can't take credit for. And so where does it start? We believe it starts with offering ourselves before God as a living sacrifice. That's why we covered Romans 12 earlier. And now it's about pursuing holiness. So we'll take three weeks to do this. But this entire year is going to be about us, we, Wildwood. How can we as a church get after it in our spiritual pilgrimage? Quit playing church. Quit toying around. Let's get after it. And I believe that's what you want. And one of the reasons I believe that is because you're here. If you didn't want it, 
you wouldn't be here and you probably wouldn't be tuning online or you may have already tuned out if you're tuning in online. So what exactly is holiness? Why are we even called to pursue it? Video production company, it's actually more than that, but they produce several videos called The Bible Project. I would highly recommend you watch everything that they have to offer. Puts together a brief video for us here. It's about five minutes long. Turn your attention to the screens and you'll find out what the Bible has to say about holiness. You've probably heard the word holy or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. 
and he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. When you hear the term holiness, most of us think of something that has to do with religion. And when we tend to, to think about it, we, we, we lean, I think, far uh, too many times into one side of holiness, one facet of holiness, when I think in actuality we should lean into the other side, the other facet first. So when the scripture says God is holy, and the scriptures say that over and over again, what does it mean? It means two things. That's what we'll explore here now. It means that God is unique, and it means that he is morally pure. And if we understand God's uniqueness, if we start there, then I think the pure moral side of him will become clearer. And, and, and I think we'll also understand what the scriptures mean when it calls us to the same kind of holiness. Here's the Stay, we'll build on this as each week goes. God is holy. And he calls his people 
to be holy. God is holy, and he calls his people to be holy. So what do we mean when we say God is holy? If you have your Bibles, open with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This will be the one passage that we stay in for a lengthy amount of time. The rest of them will be quick hits that we'll do. If you would stand in honor as we read from Isaiah chapter 6, just the first uh, three verses that are here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You may be seated. Now, when Isaiah writes this, the year is sometime around 740 BC, and the Assyrian emperor is one who is now gaining steam worldwide and is putting forth his dominance and power. But for the people of Judah, as long as Uzziah was on the throne, then they had great confidence. Uzziah, one of the great kings of Judah. And there was great confidence when there was a great king. Anytime there is a great leader that's in charge, there is great confidence amongst the people. Sometimes we can place confidence in a leader, or sometimes we can place confidence in God through any leader. The people had confidence here in Uzziah, a man who knew the Lord, loved the Lord, walked with the Lord, even though later in his life he was disciplined because he did some things that the Lord had said not to do. Overall, he was a good king. So when Isaiah writes this, he writes and he says it's in the year that Uzziah dies. Now, we don't know if this is before his death. We don't know if this is after his death. We don't know if it's on the day of his death. We just know it's in the year in which Uzziah dies. And so what would have been going on in the people's minds? They would have been looking around. They would have seen an enemy who was a very real threat, who they knew they didn't have what it took to overcome this particular enemy. And they saw the great leader that was before them, Not only because of his brain, his administrative gifts, etc., but because he also had what seemed to be a pipeline to God. He had the favor of God that was resting upon him. And so now, what do we do as a people if that guy is gone? Do you have anyone in your life that you sense you lean into? When you think about somebody else's faith, you think about leaning into them and perhaps you've Ridden in on their coattails for many, many years. It could be a spouse. could be a parent. might even be a child. You have someone that you know walks closely with the Lord, and you wonder sometimes, I wonder if God is actually blessing me because of them. Beginning in my mid-20s, I began to ask that question. I began to wonder if God was blessing me was bring about things in my life solely because of the others in my life. I have a godly heritage. I have parents who know the Lord. I have grandparents who know the Lord. I married a godly woman. I have siblings who walk with the Lord. I I have a lot of folks around me. I am blessed. And it was easy for quite some time to live out my faith through them, rather than for me just to do what the people of Israel had a choice to do, and that is to hit your knees and say, oh God, help. 
It would have been much easier to let somebody else do that on my behalf, and I am grateful for, in particular, my grandmother, who spent hours a day laboring in prayer. You know, I was struck with last week as Michael Neal preached, and if you did not hear that, please go back and listen to that sermon. Watch it, whatever you do to do the sermon. It's a fantastic sermon. Took us to the scriptures about how to deal with doubt. But you know what struck me the most in there? Was right at the beginning he said this. David asked if I would preach, and I knew exactly what I wanted to preach on because this is what God has been teaching me. What has God been teaching you? When you think about your walk with him, what has he been whispering in your ears? You read his word as you pray, as you think and ponder, as you seek to give yourself to him, as you try to put your body once again on the altar, say, I'm a living sacrifice. What, what is the Lord saying to you? Not to your wife, not to your kid, not to your pastor, not to your elders, not to your neighbors. What is he saying to you? In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord. I don't know that there would be anything that would be quite so comforting and quite so terrifying at the same time. Another had asked if he could see the Lord. It was Moses, and Moses who had met with the Lord. He had been with him. He had heard from him. Remember, God shows up in a burning bush earlier on, and he, this bush is not being consumed, but he's talking to Moses. And Moses, who had this intimate relationship with God, asked God for a favor, so to speak. He says, God, I want to see your glory. And God... In his grace and mercy says, Moses, that is a fantastic request, but you have no idea what you're asking for. If you were to actually see me, you would die. And the reason is because God's holiness cannot, hear me, cannot be handled by humans. So what had to happen was God put him into the little cleft of a rock and he said, I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see just a glimpse of my back. He puts him in a cleft of a rock. He puts his hand over it to protect Moses from his own holiness. And as he moves by, Moses gets a little peek out. And then what happens to Moses' face? It glows. Some theologians believe that it was so scorched in sunburn that it glowed. God, when he shows up, puts on the brakes, if you will, clothes himself just a little bit so that we can handle it. He says, I saw the Lord. Now, this seems to be somewhat a vision. We have every reason to believe he's in the temple right now. And it says that he is high and he is lifted up. And it talks about his robe, the train of his robe. If you've been to a wedding before, you know that when the bride makes her way down, Everyone in the room, right when those doors go, everyone in the room is looking and say, I wonder what the bride is going to look like. Now, you have typically two people in the whole building who actually want to look at the groom at that point. And all they want to do is to see his reaction to the bride. Now, royalty over the years has had this train on this road that just goes on and on. 
when I was a kid and I was getting to watch uh, the, the um, uh, Princess uh, uh, Diana and shucks, whatever his name is, <laughs> Charles, thank you very much. It was a deeply meaningful event in my life that, that took place. I do remember watching it on TV though. And if memory serves me correct, and I, it may not, um, it seemed like her train went on and on. It's like, do you really need that much? What is he saying by this? He's saying that God is high. When I saw God, he was high. Why does it say high? Because he is above everything else that is in existence. Everything was created by him and for him. Everything exists through him. Everything is to him. He is high. He is lifted up. The train of his robe goes on and on and on. What he's trying to get across in human terms can't really be captured. God is holy. He is unlike anything that has ever existed previously to this. He stands in the solitude of himself. And Isaiah says, I see him. And thank goodness it's just a vision. Because otherwise, I'd be charred right now. He's high. He's lifted up. He's exalted. The train of his robe, it fills the temple. Then he says that there's these creatures that are around him. There's some that are above him. They have six wings. Some are covering the face. Some are covering the feet. And some are enabling them to fly. Some theologians believe that the reason that they are actually covering themselves is for their own protection as well. As they are in the presence of God, that they would not be consumed purely by his magnificence, his majesty, his purity. And they call to one another. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Three times it says it. Holy, holy, holy. Present tense always will be, always has been, never been a moment in which he was not. God is holy. And there is this choir, there's this, there's this uh, um, uh, singing, this shouting that is going back and forth. Now, why was the shouting going back and forth? Is it because somehow or another God had forgotten this? Is it because the creatures had forgotten this? Is it because nobody was aware? They're just simply doing it because he is. He is holy. And because he is holy, he is worthy of all of the praise that will ever come in his direction. How about you? Is the orientation of your life in a similar fashion to this seraphim? Are there times in your life in which you feel like you just have to cover because you know walking into the presence of God is no small matter? Sometimes are you overwhelmed with his majesty, his transcendence, his magnificence? Or is it just another casual stroll into the room with some old friend? Sometimes I believe that we are when we interact with the God of the universe, I think we have the same kind of reaction Isaiah does. Now, we won't read after this because what happens is 
Isaiah has a moment where he is again terrified and comforted. And I thought the video did a great job of explaining what that was even pointing to. In Revelation, there's a similar event that takes place. I give you one in Isaiah, but I give you one towards the end of the scriptures. In chapter 4, it says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's Revelation 4.8. Now, what are these creatures? It mentions it in verse 7. It lets us know that there's these creatures. And I think the best way for us to understand it is whatever is the highest, the greatest, the most magnificent, the fullest, the most complete creatures of the earth are represented right here as they gather into the presence of God. And what is their response to God? It is to immediately give worship to. You know this about animals, don't you? You've heard the term alpha dog. And so when you've got some animals that are together, there is this one animal that is the alpha, and this is the one who sets the temperature. You've heard some people are thermometers and some people are thermostats. The thermostats are the ones that set the temperature for a room, whereas the thermometers merely reflect the temperature in the room. An alpha dog sets the temperature. And when the alpha dog comes around, the rest of them sort of know it. Now, in other animals, such as lions, etc., there's actually a battle that will take place. And once that battle is done, then everybody says, yep, you're the man. And all of the greatest creatures on the earth, the highest, the noblest, the best of the best are in the presence of God. And what do they immediately do? Yes, you are the man. It's a natural response. (laughs) I like the way that Leon Morris says it. I just simply uh, read this. The living one praises God continually. Their song reminds us That of the seraphs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The simple repetition is impressive. So is the fact that holiness comes first. Hear this. John's readers lived in a world as we do, where evil was rampant and apparently all-powerful. Goodness was weak and frustrated and ineffectual. But John's very first vision of heaven shows that these appearances are deceptive. God is holy. God is he who was and is and is to come. God's power and eternal being ensure that his holiness will indeed triumph over all evil. My friends, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what is present in your mind. I don't know what you face that seems a bit overwhelming. Maybe it's something that is personal in nature and life. Maybe it's something that's business related. Maybe it's something that's school related. Maybe it's something that's political in nature. I don't know. But my guess is you probably have something in your life right now that seems as though evil is just going to win the day. And so please hear me. Evil might win the day. But it will not win the battle. It will not win the war. There is coming a day in which Jesus will return. And the first time he came, he came disguised in a bit of a manger, sort of outside of things. People didn't fully recognize. Even though some magi came, they bowed down. Some shepherds came, they understood a little bit. But by and large, the world didn't fully understand the magnificence of Jesus. 
And so he lived the life that was necessary for us because we could not live the life that God had called. God had called all people to be holy, but we couldn't uphold that in. So Jesus does it on our behalf. And at that, as a reward for that, he gets uh, death. And then the scriptures tell us that he goes back to heaven and the time is gonna come in which he will return. Now, when he returns, the heaven's gonna be ripped open and the whole earth will see there is the alpha. And the scriptures tell us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I have this sneaking suspicion that all of us will join in with the seraphs. We will begin to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is holy. What does that mean? It first of all means that he is unique. You can write these down. You can be difficult to turn to them very rapidly because we'll move through very quickly. But where do we see this just represented in the scriptures? Ephesians, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 says this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, his character is going to be extolled in this particular section right here. The ten plagues have gone. Moses is responding here to, uh, to who God is. And there's this song that is uh, sung about him. And, and really what they're doing is asking somewhat of a rhetorical question. Who actually is like you? Well, no one. We, in some ways, are like God, but he is not like us. We reflect his character in some ways, but nothing is generated, if you will, by us. One of the best illustrations I've seen for this, and I believe this is G.K. Chesterton. Please forgive me for not uh, uh, getting this right right off the bat, but I believe it's Chesterton who said this. Oftentimes, uh, we tend to view ourselves um, as being capable of generating uh, something that is godlike. And he says this he says, the sun is that which generates the light. At night, we get a chance to look up and see the moon. And especially on a full moon, it's a brilliant sight. Just the other night, I happened to be driving with my son. I was like, oh, it's the DreamWorks moon. Where's the kid fishing pole? Is that cool moon? When a full moon, you really get to see it and you go, oh, look at the light that is coming from the moon. Now, here's what's deceptive. The moon does not generate light. It only reflects light. We are the moon. God is the sun. God is unique. There is no other God like him. No matter what other God may be prayed to or worshipped, it is a false God. It is a wrong God. It is an impotent God. Our God is the only one who is omnipotent, who is omniscient. Omni, whatever you want to put there next, uh, after that. God's the only omni. He is unique. In Revelation 15, 4, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is unique. Here's the problem. Psalm 50, 21, write this one down so you can go back and look at this a little bit more. The psalmist is making a magnificent statement when, uh, um, uh, when he writes this down. These things you have done 
And I kept silent. This is the Lord speaking. You thought I was just like you. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. Please, please put this to memory. Study this, etc. God is right. He's speaking here through the psalmist. And he says, you thought that I was just like you. You've got to remember you in some ways are like me, but, but I am not like you. Please stay with me. Is this not one of the driving reasons why we become so angry and frustrated with him? Is this not one of the reasons why we tend to walk away from him? Because we tend to think he's just like us. And if he's just like us, he would think just like we would and would approach a situation like we would. And he would heal where we would heal. He would harm where we would harm. He would forgive where we would forgive. He would withhold forgiveness where we would withhold uh, forgiveness. The problem is we tend to treat God as if he is like us and he is nothing like us. We are something like him. But on our best of days, no way would we perfectly reflect him. Are you harboring bitterness, anger, resentment towards God? It's probably because you think he's just like you or should act just like you. I'm not trying to be cold or callous. What I'm trying to say is this. God is unique. And if you keep moving forward, trying to relate to him as if he is just like you, you will spend the rest of your life in utter frustration, disillusionment. And you will lack the depth of intimacy that your soul is longing for with him. God is also morally pure. This is the other side of the equation. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. When we say that God is morally pure, we mean exactly what those words are saying, that there is not even a hint of impurity anywhere in him whatsoever. Habakkuk was saying this, if you recall, Bob preached through this, did a great job a while back. Habakkuk is saying this in actually frustration with God. He's saying this because God was saying, look, I'm going to take some people, I'm going to do something, I'm going to bring judgment upon my people. And, and so what I'm going to do is actually take a people that are more unrighteous than you are in order to bring about punishment to you so you'll come back to me. Habakkuk's saying, you're too pure for that. You can't tolerate any wrongdoing. So how in the world could you possibly use someone who's worse than we are? God is totally and completely pure. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John is certainly referring to truth in this manner, but he's also referring to the moral purity of God. In him, there is no darkness whatsoever. It doesn't take us long to, to see the analogy, does it, that John is giving us. When is it that most of us want to do the wrong things? When the lights are shining bright and the cameras are on and all is exposed? 
Or when we think no one is looking. Go back to Moses. You remember when Moses was, had the opportunity and the, uh, um, uh, uh, he comes upon uh, an Egyptian. He knows that he had just killed one of his uh, fellow Hebrews. And then what do the scriptures say? That as Moses comes up to this man, what does he do? He looks this way and this way. And then he takes the life. Pick any sin you want from the scriptures. Pick any sin from your own personal life. Don't we? In God, there is no darkness whatsoever. There is never an impure thought, motive, deed, action. He is not like us. If God is not like us, we are somewhat like him, then what is the point of us talking about holiness? Why do we study? Why do we spend a sermon just explaining these two things without a whole lot of action points? What are you supposed to do with this message? What you're supposed to do is to be reminded once again, oh, God is holy. And he calls his people to be holy. So I spend just the last few minutes wanting to ask you a few questions. In your own personal life, what is your desire as it pertains to your sin? Is your desire and deep inside to say, I I really hope nobody finds out about this. I'd like to continue to conceal it. I'd like to continue to have my little pet uh, sin here, and, and, and I would like for others to not know about it, and I'd like to keep coming to church. And man, I want us to, let's just sit in and major in on the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, and how all things are taken care of by Jesus, and he's going to give us a big hug and a kiss, and all is going to be well. Or do you want to be like God? Is there something that is stirring deep inside of you that has nothing to do with a preacher or an environment or the way that something is conveyed? It has to do with the truth that God himself is holy and he calls his people to be holy. Is there something stirring inside of you that says, God, root this sin out of me. I want it dealt with. And if you have to do it in forceful terms, God, I don't want that, but so be it. Because I want to reflect you. You are the sun. I am the moon. I want others to have the right view of you. Or do you want to come and play church? Do you want to live a fairly good religious moral life? If that's what you want, trust me, There are plenty of places for you to plug in. But my guess is because you're here and because you're watching, my gut tells me that you want something more and that you want God to do something in you and through you that not in a million years could you take credit for. So here's where it starts. It starts on the altar. And it starts by you being a living 
sacrifice and saying, God, I've crawled back off the altar again. I need help. I can't do this. And so you crawl back up on. You ask the Holy Spirit to empower you once again. See, if there's something that's stirring inside of you to live a holy life, it's great evidence that the Spirit of God is on the move inside of you. But if you are fairly bored by today's message, please question. Please wonder whether or not you're actually related to God. And if you're not, it's okay. Here's what's necessary to be rightly related to him. To acknowledge that there is nothing that you can do about your sin problem. You will never perfect yourself. Acknowledge it. Admit. Uh, admit it, if you will. And then turn to Jesus. Which means this. That you surrender the controls of your life over to the person of Christ. You no longer try to impress him with how good you can become, what you can say no to and what you can say yes to. You turn to the person of Jesus and say, I got no hope outside of you, but I believe that you did everything that was necessary on my behalf. And then you relate to him. And you relate to him simply by opening up the Bible and reading, hearing what it is that he has to say. And you pray and you talk to him. Now, why would you do that? Because God is worthy. This, this is where we close. This is something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I bet most of you have no idea what this book is. It was put together by a bunch of folks called the Westminster Divines. It's an impressive name. Just listen. Turning your life over to someone you would not be doing that as someone who is incapable. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a completely pure spirit, invisible, without bodily parts or human emotions, unchangeable, immensely vast, eternal, beyond our understanding, almighty, completely wise, completely holy, completely free, and completely absolute. He works everything according to the purpose of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is completely loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth. He forgives wickedness, transgression, and sin, and rewards those who diligently seek him. His judgments are completely just and awesome. He hates all sin and will not acquit the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in and unto himself. Nor does he need any of his creations or derive any glory from them. Rather, he manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and on them. He is the only source of all being, by whom, through whom, and to whom everything exists. He has completely sovereign dominion over all things and does with, to, or for them whatever he pleases. Everything is revealed and completely open to him. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and does not depend on any created being, so that to him nothing is conditional or uncertain. 
He is completely holy in all his purposes, works, and commands. And to him is due whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require from angels, human beings, and all other creatures. This is who you would be turning your life over to. Not just the big man in the sky. 